Hello and welcome back to Celluloid Junkies. I'm Luke Kane and I'm joined by fellow lycanthrope deniers Damien Heath. Hello. And Cameron Crothers. Hi. In honour of our favourite holiday of the year, Halloween, except for Cameron, who prefers the Queen's birthday, we've decided to celebrate an undisputed horror classic, John Landis's 1981 satirical horror comedy, An American Werewolf in London. It's all true. Please believe me. Believe what? That tomorrow night, beneath the full moon, I'll sprout hair and fangs and eat people? You'd be surprised what horrors a man is capable of. Are you all right now? I don't know. I'll let you know the next full moon. I'm a werewolf. You're gonna change. You'll kill people. You'll become... I know. A monster. David, don't lose control! Control? What control? David, I can help you. No, I'm not safe to be with. You gotta stay away from me. In 1969, John Landis was an ambitious 19-year-old, working as an assistant on the Brian G. Hutton film Kelly's Heroes in Yugoslavia. One day, he and another crew member came upon a group of gypsies performing a bizarre ritual at a burial site to ensure the deceased did not rise from the grave. Inspired, Landis wrote the first draft of what would become an American werewolf in London, about a young man who survives an animal attack while backpacking with his friend along the English moors. Landis shopped the script around, but investors refused to buy it, claiming it was either too funny to be scary or too scary to be funny, and Landis sat on the project for 11 years. Meanwhile, his star in Hollywood rose as he made a raft of successful comedies, including the Kentucky Fried Movie and National Lampoon's Animal House. After his fourth film, The Blues Brothers, opened to big box office, Landis felt he now had sufficient clout to get the project off the ground. He brought it to England, which at the time offered filmmakers a tax rebate under the Edie levy as an incentive to encourage production in Britain. With a modest budget of $10 million, Landis cast unknown stage actors in the principal roles and hired special makeup effects artist Rick Baker to design the monster, who would go on to win an Academy Award for his work. The opening scenes were shot in Wales and the rest in various locations throughout London. Released on the 21st of August 1981 with a running time of 97 minutes, the film opened to mixed reviews and became a talking point amongst movie critics and audiences, who were surprised by its unusual tone and grotesque creature effects. Like all of the movies we've covered on our podcast so far, American Werewolf's reputation developed over time. The film has subsequently inspired a radio adaptation, a Hindi film, an ill-conceived sequel in 1997, and became the basis of a recurring attraction at Universal Studios during their Halloween Horror Nights event in Orlando, Florida. Damien, what did you think of American Werewolf in London? We all got together and watched it about a year ago, and I hadn't seen it for quite a while before that. And instantly it went to number 10 on my favourite horror movies, and I gave it five stars. So absolutely love the movie. I think the blend of horror comedy is better than any other example um, out there. The film holds up in both genres, but mostly as a horror film for me. I think the special effects are fantastic. The performances are really good. The characters are all likeable. And it was it was surprising to me when I watched it about a year ago how much I loved it, but just absolutely loved it. We watched it at yours, didn't we? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I remember not thinking it was that great that time that we watched it. Yeah. I watched it again for this podcast and I loved it. Yeah, um, I really, really love it. I think it's... Um... Again, I don't really have much to add to that. I think it's a, yeah, it's a terrific blend of horror and comedy. I think um, the effects hold up very well. I know we're going to talk about them a lot more later. Um, but yeah, I love this film. I think it's um, one of the best horror films um, on my sort of top ten list. And I, yeah, I love it. Just so people know, Cameron doesn't really have an affection for the Queen. Yeah. Even though this is set in London. That's right. Yeah. So in a way, it's... Apropos. So, um, what did you guys think of the film's title? It was a very striking title. Yeah, and I think um, when you look at where John Landis came from, which was purely a comedy, the comedy genre, the 
title An American Werewolf in London it's expositional but it also does straddle that line between horror and comedy and it does it perfectly uh, especially when you juxtapose that against the title of The Howling which was the other major werewolf film in the same year which is purely a horror title The Howling and you don't really get too much from it apart from it's a werewolf movie but An American Werewolf in London is kind of setting you up for this displacement that occurs so there's going to be this I guess a little bit of comedy a comedy of errors yeah in there I think it's, it's kind of the film's first joke yeah and it was interesting that it was originally marketed as An American Werewolf in London the monster movie oh was it yeah so that was one of the subtitles on the poster and uh, Landis had said that he wanted to make a monster movie and he wasn't that concerned with what monster he chose whether it was vampires or zombies but eventually he obviously settled on a werewolf um and uh, zombies had had such a popular time in the 70s with George Romero and Lucio Fulci but werewolves were pretty much non-existent in major movies there were a whole bunch of werewolf movies in the 70s but in terms of major werewolf movies financial successes there really weren't any and it wasn't until The Howling and American Werewolf came out and then it led to this whole gluttony of uh, 1980s werewolf movies like Teen Wolf and The Company of Wolves Silver Bullet uh, The Beast Within there was another one in 1981 called Wolfen and The Howling had five sequels that were all released in the 1980s as well I never saw any of them I saw the first Howling mm. what do you reckon about the title Cameron? well I mean it's certainly accurate <laughs> there is an American werewolf and he is in London um, it's almost yeah, a I mean, synopsis isn't it yeah I don't really have a whole lot to add to it I think it's fantastic I think it, it I like the fact that it kind of when you hear it it almost sounds like a little bit of a fairy tale yeah um, and I think that, you know it is kind of like that there is a bit of a Shakespearean element to this film I think and I think that kind of adds yeah you know, a nice little Does a nice it... little bit to it but yeah I mean I, I, I think it's a great title yeah I think it's definitely like there's a fable quality to the mm. film feels like you're watching a fairy tale yeah. I also like that the title kind of on the surface has like a B-movie trashiness yeah and the more you think about it the sophistication of it sort of comes out a little yeah. bit um I really liked it so what about our our you know protagonist David what did you guys make of him and in what ways do you think he's sort of stereotypical of the young American leading man particularly in the 80s he's got that all-American sporty look about him. He's got that deep voice which lends this manliness to him. Uh, he wears this oversized jacket which is reflective of a baseball jacket which is very popular in America. He's really clean-cut, good-looking, perfect hair, chiseled jawbone. So physically he looks like the lead character in so many American teen movies at the time. Um, and uh, he spends a decent portion of the movie naked or just in his underwear and he's not ashamed of it. It's not like 40% or something? Is it 40%? <laughs> it's 40% or... It's 60 or 40, I can't remember which way it is, but it's like f at least 40% of the movie he's naked. <laughs> um, and then you've got this, as I said, this displacement of the location. So you've got these two American college students in the UK. Um, until David meets Nurse Price, they don't have much less luck assimilating with the locals. And the slaughtered lamb scene at the start really sets this up well. So you've got these two different nationalities, the British and Americans, and the differences between them are enhanced because of this, and they become, if anything, even more American. Yeah, and a lot of the comedy is derived out of that kind of cultural clash between the American boys, or boy, and the British, mm. the people of England. Um, I thought he had like a Marty McFly feeling about him in a way. Like he had like a spunkiness. He always had like witty comeback and um, he just felt very much like I'd seen him in a series of other films. Yeah, he could have been in Back to the Future. Cam, did you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, um, so I think like David in many ways is the quintessential male figure of that age bracket. Um, he's travelling and trying to experience all that life has to offer. He's got a healthy fixation on sex, as we see later with Alex, played by Jenny Agutta. I don't, I don't know if that's how you say it. Um, but he's also quite interesting in that he seems a little bit more complex. Uh, he talks about how Jack, his friend, uh, shouldn't be fixated on, on Debbie sexually because she's shallow, which is kind of how a lot of men would like to see themselves um to be the person that believes they see more in women than just their physical attributes yep. i think it's a great character trait to to be included in a, in the film but something feels a little bit too ham-fisted 
in the film in terms of its delivery. Um, it's so early on in the film and it feels like it's definitely there to set up who these two main characters are. I mean, I think the film... I think you're right about that, and especially the healthy focus on sex. That's a big part of that archetype of sure. character. It's also very 80s. <clears throat> like, the sex comedies was quite big in the 80s when you think of, like, Porky's and stuff like yeah. that. Well, even Animal House. Yeah, for sure. I've never seen it, but, I, yeah. you know, you can look at the cover of a movie like that and you think, oh, there's going to be a healthy amount of sex in yeah, that yeah, movie yeah. or an unhealthy amount. Like a bit of tawdriness. What about the town of conspirators? See, once they go into the slaughtered lamb, they get that icy Western-style reception. Mm. Um, and then throughout the film... Um, it's sort of like a, I guess, a horror trope that it's just this whole town that know this secret. The reason it works so well here is that the townspeople actually seem genuinely scared. Um, so often when this convention or the cliche is used, the townsfolk have a great deal of confidence in what they're guarding or as or what they're too often portrayed, and they're too often portrayed as the other. As much as they're extremely diff- uh, different both culturally and in personality to our main characters, they still seem like people and they're portrayed as such. Yeah. Um, there are moments of humanity that make you care about these people who are burdened with the secret they're guarding. It was almost cartoonish. I thought that was really funny. Oh, for how, sure. How intense they were about the secret and, yeah. you know, like yeah. the guy yelling out that guy's name when he's almost saying too much and then the guy standing in the rain waiting for yeah. the doctor. Like, it, it was all very... very it was. Even the bartender. You can't let them go! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, like, when, that, when the bald guy... Um, tells that joke and he gets that laugh that's just a little bit too big um yeah what did you think about it Damien? uh well looking into this uh idea of the town with the secret and you think that there's a whole lot we had this discussion oh. you think that there's a whole lot more examples and i think you tend to think of all of the haunted towns that are kind of cut off from everything like village of the damned and silent hill and the fog as being examples of that but they're not because the locals are largely unaware of yeah. what's going on there um, so I would say the best used examples of the town of the secret would be the wicker man and the Stepford wives mm. uh, and that's because the locals in those movies use it as an idea to get what they want rather than as something to be feared yeah so you know yeah. they're all happy and dancing in the wicker man and the, the men are moved to this town to for that purpose to convert their women in the Stepford wives this in here it works as a jump off for the comedy it's not the central focus throughout the movie but it is this kind of interesting aside but it's really interesting that it's not just the americans not just the main characters but it's the ones that they get to meet later on like the doctor mm. who are shut out from this secret so it does seem like this small town's unwilling to share its secret with anyone um, in the movie, it leads to some scepticism from the rest of the cast at first from David's doctor before he starts to believe and the nurse and also the police officers from Scotland Yard. But on the other hand, you have Jack constantly popping up and he's saying, David, you're a werewolf and you have to kill yourself so I can have some peace. So there's no suspense at any point through this movie about what the secret is or whether or not it's true. Yeah, that's the secret. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like you do know what yeah. they're guarding from the get go, so that secret isn't there. That is that is very different. Unlike in something like The Village, where sure. it's this big reveal at yeah. the end of the movie. Uh, even the Stepford Wives and the Wicker Man are big reveals at the end of the movie done a lot better than the village. Yeah. But <clears throat> the whole contrivance of their plots relies on the reveal at the end of the film. That's the climax. That's right. That's yeah. what the whole film is essentially about, whereas this film is not about that at all. No. But I think it's a really, really fun idea, and it's fun that the movie plays with it so overtly. It's not It's not done at all serious. It's done with a real kind of chin-waggle. Is that a thing? Chin-waggle, yeah, that's a thing. And we'll post the link to that. Chin-waggles. We'll post the link to chin-waggles. <laughs> we'll post the link to the, the list to. The list on Letterboxd. So if you're listening and you've got any examples of that, <laughs> you can contribute. Yeah. And, I mean, that plays into the film in sort of a, a broader way because the whole film, we have this anxiety about what's coming. You're going to turn into a werewolf. You know, they play that out for an hour. We know he's going to turn into... Yeah. one so you're just kind of sitting there that's part I of I do that. like that I think that lends itself to that feeling of like impending doom to David's character yeah because you know the stakes from the from the get-go and it's almost like by constantly telling us through the character of Jack that he's going to turn into a werewolf the movie's promising we're going to get a really cool scene coming up so yeah. you're waiting and waiting for that cool scene like the movie's kind of has the confidence to tell you we're going yeah. to do this soon it is a very confident film yeah very okay. it's very audacious <clears throat> what did you think overall of the look of the film the blu-ray copy that I have I'm not sure if it's the same transfer that you guys have yeah I saw you got a different one was 
not fantastic. Very, very, very grainy. Yeah. And I know that they are just releasing a restored edition oh, this cool. month or next month. Do we know so what company is doing I'm not sure. It would be really interesting to see that without the grain. It did look dated when I watched it, or maybe that was just the way that it was shot. Um, the the guy who did the cinematography, Robert Painter, his most famous film before this was probably The Nightcomers with Marlon Brando. Then he did the, oh, and the remake of The Big Sleep. Uh, and he did Superman 3 and Trading Places. And John Landis directed Michael Jackson's Thriller and did chose him for the cinematography as well. I think it's very functional. Um, I think working with makeup effects means that you're pretty limited in how you can shoot those effects mm. but it's done well enough I mean especially the transformation scene I think it's shot as well as it probably could be back then um, that said I do have one favourite sequence from the movie and I think it's really well shot and it's the one it's really the only kinetic sequence in the movie it's the one in the subway oh, yeah. so good such a good scene um, David's uh, he's transformed at this point he's mostly unseen and he stalks this businessman and there's some really great shots tracking with the businessman from both in front and behind through these tight empty corridors and you eventually look top down on him on an escalator as the werewolf enters the frame from that, the top of the screen that below is my favourite shot in the film it's a brilliant brilliant shot in yeah. any movie it would be a brilliant shot John Landis says it's his favourite shot of the film yeah. in the documentary yeah. okay so yeah I mean I think yeah Bob Painter cinematography um it's quite it's quite beautiful without being particularly revolutionary, um, like you said. I think color plays a huge part in it, and I think uh, restraint does as well. I think the camera the camera often just lets scenes play out rather than become becoming a character unto itself. Um, there are obvious there are obvious exceptions to this. You've spoken about the subway scene, but when it comes to those another example is those POV shots of the wolf running through the forest uh, with a steady cam, which I think are great and coincidentally remind me a lot of Eve, of Evil Dead, which was released in the same year. One by one, we will take you. I think it's interesting that when a technology is in its infancy, like the steady cam was at that point, you get to see how filmmakers utilize it to advance their story or the plot. Like you have John Carpenter's haunting long shots in Halloween to give Michael Myers his slow, deliberate method of killing a greater weight. You have Kubrick's mesmerizing use of it in The Shining as he follows Danny's big wheel through those long corridors of the Overlook Hotel. Uh, which gives greater weight to the impending doom of the, that entire film. Uh, these days, I think the Steadicam is used out of laziness um, far too often, as, and interestingly enough, a known technological filmmaker like Fincher uses the old method of a camera dolly to get the narrative effect he wants, um, while obviously using computers to make those moves as perfectly calibrated as possible. And, you know, and his cinematography is often singled out as being so idiosyncratic. In terms of colour, I think the interiors are often very drab, but I think that's a conscious choice to highlight the red blood, the blackness of the creature later on in the film. And it's also just an element of late 70s, early, early 80s London, you know, like... Grimy, brown. There's also the red jacket that David wears in the opening scenes, which was mentioned before, um, which really stood out to me as possibly kind of a foreshadowing as to what's to come for him um, you know we often associate Red with danger and we've obviously spoken a lot about Red in film on the Don't Look Now podcast yep. um, yeah I think it's solid cinematography in Werewolf but I think it's restricted to its era those scenes of the boys walking through the moors is an example of this like I think that scene is far too lit and it reads as such. It's almost like accentuated. It's definitely moonlight. It's just so accentuated. It's, it's, it's just so boomed it's really interesting that in the black and white era they really didn't have that problem with lighting at night. Yeah. And then you've got this transition to colour in the uh, 50s. Yep. And now we have 30 years later when this film's made and I can, there's another example, obviously, he went from day for night with Deliverance and it mm. looks shocking these days. Yeah. And uh, it's really interesting that 30 years later and film stocks were perfectly fine back then. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he, he could have done anything and the film's already grainy enough. Mm. Um, that it wouldn't have made much of a difference to the way that it looked, but he still couldn't get that right. It is too lit in yeah. that scene. And I think, um, I remember even hearing um, when uh, Robert Rodriguez did Sin City and that was done in black and white and he said, he goes, wow, I really need to learn how to fucking light now because lighting for black and white is so different because in colour, like, like you have people's clothes to bring them out mm. a bit further you have you can use color in, in different ways to sort of get around having to light them in a particular way and it's like in black and white you really have to know when everything's going to hit because if not it's just going to become like a flat piece of 
you know, nothing. Obviously, Bob Painter went on to uh, shoot Superman 2, which I consider to be the far superior film than the original. So he always, you know, holds a soft spot for me. And very of its time, you sit, feel like you're sitting down to watch an 80s movie. Yeah. I like that feeling. It's a pretty bright film for a horror film. And, I mean, look, even its energy is quite up for a horror movie. <laughs> you're not real. I don't be a putz, David. Well, we meant to think of Jack as a literal ghost delivering these messages to David. Um, or is it more metaphorical? And, and what did you think of uh, Jack's gradual decomposition as, you know, the movie progressed? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I do see Jack as a literal ghost giving David the message. I don't know if I could really reckon with it any other way. Yeah. I might just be retarded. No, I'm the same. I think it's literal. In terms of his uh, decomposition, I think it's pretty wonderfully realised. I think particularly the first time we see him in that hospital room, um, there's that hanging bit of flesh on his neck that wiggles as he talks, and it Mm. just ups the gross factor remarkably. So, like, he's got all of this stuff pulled away from his body and added on, obviously, with prosthetics, but, like, that little wiggle of flesh somehow just makes it so gross. It's really well done. Yeah. um, I love how Jack's personality doesn't really change in the slightest, even throughout the decomposition process. He seems... Um, like, although he was a great friend of David, he was the asshole of the two. Um, and he does seem fixated on making sure he isn't left on limbo, which is obviously fair in some ways, because I imagine that would be horrible. But the fact that he desperately asks his best friend to commit suicide for his own cause is extremely telling and sort of pretty jarring. Um, I also love how cavalier he is when he speaks to David, even though he's essentially a walking corpse. I think it demonstrates perfectly the line, the movie toes between comedy and horror. Um, I think the decomposition is terrific, uh, but I think it goes a little too far when he takes David into the adult theatre and he's obviously, it's obviously just a skeleton. Yeah. Like, they're, they're like, shaking around. Um, it's a point in the movie where I think the stakes are quite high and it's one of the few times I think comedy is probably used in the wrong place there. Mm. I guess I didn't really answer this question, that part of this question. I just talked about how much I love Jack. Because <laughs> Jack's my favourite character in the movie and uh, it's funny, John Landis told him that despite his condition and his appearance, he had to, quote, stay happy. And that was his direction throughout the movie, stay happy. And that's why he is just the same as he is at uh, the start of the movie. And we've all had friends like that as well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That just don't get ruffled by anything. Unfitted, yeah. He's the best uh, point of comedy in the movie. His exchanges with David are great. I think the best of those is in the cinema uh, after David's first night as a werewolf and he says, do you mind, the man's a friend of mine after they're trying to come up with ways that he can commit suicide. Yeah, I do, um, like, that. I do like that part of it. And yeah, one yeah. of them says that choking would bring too much uh, pain. <laughs> no, if you did it wrong, it could be painful. You'd choke to death. So what? Let him choke. Do you mind? The man's a friend of mine. My other favourite thing is that uh, even though he's a corpse, he's still worried about Debbie Klein and the fact she (laughs) cried a lot at his funeral but found solace in someone else's bed. But there's also something that I kind of read into the movie and I'm sure it's unintentional, but we do have this scene in there with the Nazi uniforms and um, David's family getting killed by them but in every scene that Jack returns to me his clothing and his makeup looks him, makes him look like a returned Vietnam vet oh, it's wow. dark clothing very bloody it's green and brown and I'm not sure if that's a conscious decision from the director um, but if if it was a commentary on the treatment of returning Vietnam veterans I think it's really quite powerful I never thought about it that way. It was just the purely the aesthetic of what he looked yeah. like. Nothing to do with story or anything, but purely the aesthetic. He looked a lot like a gritty returned war soldier. Well, the time frame fits because I think it, it was like 78 Deer Hunter and yeah. coming home and films like that were coming out. Mm. So there was that feeling in the air at the time. Yeah. That was the first time he showed up at the bed and I thought, wow, he looks like he's just returned from Vietnam. And, and he's then... got these grisly wounds that could be war wounds. Yeah, and I mean, at one point, he's he's completely green. Josh Rothkopf wrote in his article in Rolling Stone about a Jewish neuroses link. He wrote that, you know, Jack could be like, you know, the whole Jewish neuroses thing is guilt. So Jack could be coming back. And then also the werewolf thing is like a self-persecution thing, which mm. is also part of... I guess, the um, stereotypical Jewish neuroses. 
So he wrote about, and then of course, yeah, you mentioned the Nazi demons, they're wearing Nazi things. So there are all these little like tiny things and David looks quite Jewish and they actually say he's Jewish because remember she says she has a look at him. John Landis couldn't do any full frontal shots of of the actor because he had to reveal he's not he's not actually circumcised yeah, so they couldn't, they, they couldn't do any full frontal shots of him way to get out of it though yeah but yeah. Nurse Price also mentions in that same scene that a lot of people do it now get circumcised now during the Nazi scene there's Jewish uh, Jewish things in the house of the family so you, you've got to read into it that he's Jewish well yeah I mean but whether or not that really does play a significant role and that the whole thing is kind of like this allegory for the Jewish neuroses I don't know that might be a bit of a stretch but it's an interesting thing to think about what did you think of the Jewish the sorry the, uh, the Nazi demon scene it's one of those things that I look at it and I think how the fuck did that make it into a screenplay? It's just so bizarre. Yeah, and and I mean the film wouldn't be lacking without it's it. It's just so, it's just so strange. Like like there is a couple of mentions of uh, you know being Jewish and all that kind of thing, but just the fact that there's Nazis and and you know and it's weird because they don't have a swastika on them. Yeah. But you weirdly associate them with Nazi. Yeah, I think it's the helmet mostly, but you're right, yeah. there's no insignia. But I like how bizarre it is. And it's cut really well. And there's that double scare. Yeah. I like how the mum just gets whizzed away by bullets in that car, yeah. like, boom, and then his, yeah. and then it keeps cutting back to his eyes going left and right. Yeah. It has a when good energy. Got, well, yeah. it feels a bit, like, stylized, like, more of a ballet version of yeah. how it would really look. So what do we call these creatures? Nazi demons. Yeah. Nazi demons. I think I think I've okay. heard them refer to them as Nazi demons yeah. before. I saw one review and they called them Nazi werewolves. That's obscene. Well, they're not werewolves. No, I've called them goblins. I call them Dreamtime nasties. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's uh, we've done the town with a secret. The dream within a dream is another yeah. horror trope that's used quite a lot. Um, obviously, I guess most commonly in the Nightmare on Elm Street series, especially yeah. part four, the Dream Warrior, the Dream Master. What a sucked face. And that is, it's just used constantly over and over and over in one of the scenes in there, but it's used throughout the other films as well. Uh, it's also used in the remake of The Wicker Man, which I've never seen, in The Mouth of Madness, two of the Children of the Corn films, and. Not that I can remember it, but it's also used in the 2010 version of The Wolfman. I, I don't remember anything about that film. You've been a bad boy, Billy. Oh, God. <laughs> it's not the line. <laughs> you saw me standing alone Without a dream in my heart Did you think there was any significance to the sort of sexual angst repression theme that runs through the film? Just because I think it's like undeniably yeah. threaded through the film yeah. from, you know, him watching that model on the TV. I mean, you could do a lot of interpretation on that point and I think you'd get lost in kind of... One. Babble. I think you could definitely see the parallels between the transformation of David into a man and the metaphor underpinning his transformation into... As like a metaphor underpinning the transformation into a werewolf. Mm. I think we all fear sometimes as humans that we may have a monster inside of us and we constantly repress that fear by being overcordial in social situations to overcompensate for that. Um, deep down, we might not be that nice underneath. And I think that's a fear that we all kind of have. But I may be revealing a little bit. <laughs> a monster cool. deep down inside. <laughs> this is interesting. <laughs> That was really good. I liked it. Well, no, but you saying about the, you know, him spending 40% of the film naked, mm. the transformation scenes, he is always, that they're kind of, you become associated in your mind with his nakedness. And John Landis sort of shoots it in a way where we're getting how many body. How many transformation scenes are in the movie? Two? One of them he's naked and one of them he's fully clothed in the cinema. I don't remember, but he's dreaming. He dreams naked when the horrible dreams start. Yeah, yeah. Then, then you know, he wakes up from the werewolf attacks naked in a wolf pen. So, you know, and then there's that whole comedy scene about him trying to get home naked. Mm. So, I mean, you just... There are a lot of moments in the film where it feels like, I don't know, the two things, sex and the transformations, start I think, to I think, blend. Um, uh, we're teased with how the werewolf will look uh, at that point through the opening flashes and the first attack on the moors. Um, and that scene is so brutal that we immediately know that when it comes, it's going to be horrific. Um, I think a modern-day film, that scene would be shown a lot earlier and would ultimately suffer for it. Um, I think knowing what, what's coming kind of underpins each scene with that feeling of impending doom that I've spoken about with David, and I think it adds 
the gravitas <laughs> situation for me. I think we're definitely ready for it when yeah. it comes. Yeah, I think we're ready for it. I don't think it um, negatively affects the movie in any way that it takes an hour. We already know it's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, just from the title of the movie, we know it's going to happen. So we know at some point he's going to convert into a werewolf. And just going back to what I said earlier about during the 1970s, there weren't a lot of werewolf movies or major werewolf movies. So this film almost had a duty to explain a little bit about werewolf mythology to people who were new to it. And especially the fact that it's a horror comedy means that there was a, probably a large portion of the audience who were seeing it on the back of Animal House and Blues Brothers rather than on the back of horror movies that they were into. So they might have had absolutely no idea at all. And so it does this a, a little bit of explaining of werewolf mythology before the werewolf comes out. And I think that works. And not to mention that you do get to know and care about the characters a lot more. So there's all these characters that ultimately, by the time the werewolf appears, you actually really like them. You've got to believe me, David. Believe what? That tomorrow night, beneath the full moon, I'll sprout hair and fangs and eat people? Bullshit! Rick Baker, who did the special effects on this film, and he'd been promising Landis that he would do Landis's werewolf movie for a decade. He'd worked on all of Landis's films subsequently. And uh, then by the time Landis actually got funding for this film, he uh, contacted Rick Baker, who admitted that he had already agreed to do work on The Howling. So apparently John Landis blew his top at him, and then he uh, he deferred to his uh, protege, who was Rob Boutine, who we talked about on The Thing, mm. to do the work on The Howling, and then he went off and honoured his commitment to Landis. I think it goes without question that for the time the work is outstanding. The transformation of David into the werewolf is really painful to watch and I think it's a lot due to Norton's performance. There was a chance of it just becoming a transformation from human to animal. They're two separate things. But in this, you know, at the end of it, this is David and he's now a werewolf and that's because of all of his moaning groaning and screaming during this scene all of the painful things the, the hand becoming bigger he really makes it seem like it's happening to him as a person rather than it is just a makeup effect that's happening the ultimate form of the werewolf uh, and you see it a lot at the end of the movie I thought it was really cute <laughs> and I thought geez, that looked like a really fun pet to have <laughs> no, it did not. Yeah, it did. It looked like a big cat. It looked vicious and huge and rabid and slobbery. But I think the best makeup work is done on Jack. Um, and especially in that first time that he appears at David's bedside. Yeah. That for me is better than the werewolf transformation. But the werewolf transformation is really good. Um, I really like that he subverts expectations stylistically by having it brightly lit. And by yeah. having the Blue Moon song mm. play over it and not some kind of tense atmospheric sound. Yeah, I mean, I love the transformation scene. I love how abruptly it starts with him reading and then just yelling, Jesus Christ. Um, I do hate that he says I'm burning up, essentially, to nobody else but the audience. We can see that by the fact that you're sweating so profusely and you've ripped your shirt off. But the transformation scene, for me, is like a landmark of horror cinema. Um, the snout extending, the heels of... David, like, elongating is awesome. Yeah. Um, I remember hearing that the transformation scene in The Wolfman, the 1940s uh, Wolfman, uh, was a big influence on the way they went about the effects, that they wanted to do transition into different stages of the transformation without dissolves, like yeah. it's done in that film. Um, I think Rick Baker and his team did a remarkable job, particularly without the advent of CGI, like, like what we would have today, um, which is also interesting because Rick Baker worked on the remake of The Wolfman, um, released in 2010, which does blend CGI and prosthetic effects to what I think worked to a much lesser extent. I also love the shot when where David looks directly down the barrel of the lens at one moment, as if he's almost pleading from help from the audience. I think that's a really interesting, almost almost like a fourth wall break kind of thing. But the most affecting scene for me was the opening attack on the Moors. Like, there's no sh huge showmanship on display in the way that Griffin Dunn's character was left completely mauled. Um, it's just good old-fashioned, like, blood and a little guts, and it's the most horrifying scene in the film to me just because that's the most realistic. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, Rick Baker's obviously a legend in his field. He's won seven Oscars, this being the first, like you've mentioned, Luke. Um, Harry and the Hendersons he won an Oscar for, which is the second time that this yeah. film has been mentioned on the podcast with Alan Davio being the cinematographer of that film, which we spoke about on last month's Fearless. 
I, th- I think that's a sign. I think we're going to have to do Harry and the Henderson. <laughs> he probably used castaway options from this movie to design Harry. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but there's not uh, a big leap. You know, uh, he also won for Ed Wood, The Nutty Professor, Men in Black, which was back-to-back wins in 1997-1998, uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and The Wolfman re- uh, remake, again, strangely enough, was the last one that the Rick Bakers won. <laughs> The Howling. So I, I uh, checked out The Howling and the transformation sequence in The Howling that was released four months prior to American Werewolf in London. And the major differences were that firstly, Landis uses pop music, um, Sam Cooke's ballad version of Blue Moon during this transformation, whereas Joe Dante for The Howling uses score. Landis allows Norton to moan and groan in pain while transforming, which Dante doesn't do. Rather, his werewolf transformation is largely silent apart from the sounds of the body morphing. Mm. And thirdly, American Werewolf is shot with a lot more light than The Howling during this sequence. The Howling is very dark and shadowy. So you see a lot more of what's happening in American Werewolf and ultimately the changes have more effect. And obviously we just discussed that Rob Boutine did the makeup on The Howling. We praised, praised him a lot in our first podcast with The Thing. Um, his transformation in The Howling was really good, but certainly American Werewolf's transformation is a lot better. Um, it has more humanity, more impact. And speaking specifically on the transformation scene rather than any other makeup, this sequence gives you a better idea of what's happening to the human body. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I think there's like a screaming child in there. <laughs> and for once, it's not Luke. <laughs> Does someone want to walk down there and like smack her out? Oh, what a little bitch. <laughs> why, um, why is it that, do you think, that the film's tone, this blend of comedy and horror works so well here and hasn't in so many other films that have tried to marry those two things? Landis had wanted to make... American Werewolf for a long time. What was it, 12 or 13 years? 11 years, yeah. 11 years since since he had thought about it or since he'd written the screenplay? Written the script. So obviously it was a labour of love for him. He's a very good comedy director. His films were phenomenally successful before American Werewolf. And I know there, there are some other great horror comedies out there. I know you'll disagree with me, Luke, but Reanimator is one of them. For fuck's sake. Um, some other really good examples, the Evil Dead films, especially number two, Gremlins, Dead Alive or Brain Dead, depending on uh, where you live, Fright Night, The Lost Boys, more recently, Shaun of the Dead, What We Do in the Shadows. Mm. So the genre does have a lot of good examples of successful films. Particularly in the 80s. It seems like it seems to have been a good decade for those kinds of films. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the teen comedy genre and the teen horror genre, which were around at the time, just lent themselves to... Let's combine them and make a whole bunch of really cheap drive-in films, and so some of them were going to be successful. I think um, also, I mean, it was the Reagan years in America, so there probably was a a feeling that we should make our horror films a bit fluffier and a bit more comedic and not too harrowing because he was a bit a bit like that. Well, Landis was a comedy director and he'd been really successful, so he just kind of blended what he loved with what he'd already been doing. What he loved was this idea of making a monster movie and the best comedic parts there's Jack and David but there's also that opening scene in the slaughtered lamb with those people not responding to um, what they're asking the questions about the pentagram and everything and then there's even some funny moments between David and Nurse Price and one of the stupider funny sequences is where David's naked in the zoo and he steals that young boy's balloons but that line where the young boy goes back up to his mum is really funny. A naked American man stole my balloon. I like the old woman as well that he kind of ambushes. Yeah. It's really funny all the British reactions, like because they all mm. <laughs> really plays with that whole stereotype. Uh, John Landers didn't tell that lady that he was going to be naked. All when right. He, walked up, he just said someone's going to come up and, and say something <laughs> to you, and then you're going to have to respond, and that's a, yeah, a genuine reaction as well, which I thought was. Cool. You can kind of feel that when yeah. you watch it. But I think when you do a horror comedy, the comedy is the easy part. It's always easy to make someone laugh. Mm. But to make them laugh and to make them scared at the same time is really difficult. And that's why it's really, you know, I think it's so hard to find good examples of horror comedy. 
Well, I think it's I think it's hard. The comedy can be quite hard. I think you've got to be very disciplined with it. If it if it bo- if it kind of boils over into absurdity, then you can kind of the scares are drained out of it because the film becomes mm. you know less credible. Most of the comedy out of this came out of just the practicalities of being a werewolf and, and you know ending up say naked in a zoo and how are you going to get home? It's a perfect example. And the fact that those are real wolves is also quite scary. And that one got up um, when it wasn't meant to and he leapt out pretty fast, which is in the film. Do you find the movie scary? I think there are moments of genuine suspense, particularly the subway sequence. Mm. is probably the best example of when the film's tension has really got you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think it works both as a horror and comedy and it's one of those rare ones that actually does. But it's not absolutely terrifying. It's got... got that good mix where there are moments where it's funny and there are moments where it's kind of scary. Yeah. And so, you know, it works. I think Um, Scream does that quite well as well. You feel quite nervous through Scream, but then you're also laughing occasionally and one doesn't hurt the other. But the film clearly led to this huge amount of horror comedies being made after it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think probably one of the big reasons Landis couldn't get the film commissioned for so long was because there just weren't prototypes of this type of film out there for him to sell it. He said the biggest thing he ran into was people would say it's too funny to be scary, too scary to be funny. You know, for the most part, you genuinely care about these characters and you feel for what they're going through. So when the humour, like, arises out of their actions, and for the most part, in a pretty realistic way, other than probably that zoo scene that feels a little bit Abbott and Costello... Um, at times, it does work. I um, like it. Leave the wolves alone, Cameron. No, the wolves is good. The you know running with the balloons and the, it's a bit protracted. That whole yeah, yeah, getting home yeah. thing. Comedy and horror get to those basis of human emotions, which is a fear of death. I mean, we watch uh, horrific films. Sorry, we watch horror films as a form of catharsis because horrible things are happening to people other than ourselves. Yeah. Um, there's also a belief that people enjoy laughter because for a moment you're escaping the notion that in the end we'll die. So I think the two do go hand in hand. And I think it works in this case because you, yeah, you care about the protagonist so much um, and they just feel like us. Even the supporting characters in this film are quite good, like the Doctor and the... The Doctor's really good. I really like his sort of overall arc is quite interesting because he starts off and he's quite bristly and, yeah. um, and he does genuinely seem to care about what's going on and um he almost has like a paternal kind of figure in that um yeah in the whole film i think david please please let me help you did you think the climax of the film was rushed uh no i mean i fucking love the ending of this film i think the carnage that ensues right before the ultimate climax is so terrifying like the speed and the ferocity of that pile up in piccadilly square is so expertly done and the way it works is like a two punch right to the gut before we lose our main character um spoilers um (laughs) you know and it feels almost shakespearean kind of thing that tragedy at the end um i love it um i think it's also an interesting point to make that Landis also directed another huge car pile-up scene in the Blues Brothers, which was released the year before, and it was completely different in tone. Um, it's just it's done in a comedic fashion in that film, and in Werewolf, it's just unadulterated carnage. It's yeah. just and that guy getting squashed between those two cars, like every it just it's just like boom, 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 and you like don't have a second to sort of process what's going on, and it's really, really violent. Um, I think it's the film's darkest joke that. Even though the werewolf comes out, it's actually we're all just killing each other in that yeah. car accident. I love it. Um, I think the film. I think that the film just ends is a perfect example of sort of tragedy and how to deliver it. I think lingering on the aftermath or showing, you know, Alex at a funeral would cheapen it completely. Uh, David is killed after showing just a flicker of human emotion beneath that werewolf makeup, and then like uh, at that moment, we think he possibly will survive for for an instant, and then he's killed. You know, moments later, the credits roll with that completely ironic music. Um, and we, as an audience member, are left to sort of ponder it. We're given the chance to process it ourselves without being sort of spoon-fed our feelings by, you know, having those last expositional scenes that will mean nothing. I think Alex's um, goodbye to David is kind of really touching in a mm-hmm. weird way, but it's also really funny. I don't know, her just standing there going, I love you. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. she's talking to this giant made-up beast it, it is it's it's funny and it's also kind of it works as both it's that odd mix mm. um i don't think it's rushed 
I think it's abrupt, yeah. but I don't think it's rushed. And uh, I can see why people think that, but I guess most films don't kill off the protagonist. Yeah. So where's it going to go Yeah, after I think that? The production crew also had really limited access to Piccadilly yeah. Square. So, I mean, you know, they would have got what they got, I think, over a couple of... D- two nights, wasn't it? Two nights. So yeah, a couple of nights, and they, they had to be in the process where they could clean it up after in half an hour. Wow. Which is... Ridiculous, and I think the mm. production assistant got the compliment of "you did that faster than we clean up road accidents." Yeah, yeah. and like you know, so like sometimes it takes me half an hour to set up my fucking tripod, right? Yeah, <laughs> and then you know, removing vehicles, yeah, um, considering glass that, that is getting smashed, shot over two nights. The footage they got was great. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was your favorite part in that uh, pile-up sequence before we get to the? Oh gosh, I don't know if I could pick one. I think I just liked. I mean, the 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 cuts of all the cars hitting each other was so punchy. I really enjoyed the whole rhythm of it. it just kept going on and yeah. on and yeah. on. Yeah, it was almost ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I mean. It is almost a joke. No, you yeah. can feel that Landis is having a laugh there. I mean, the werewolf is just casually walking down the street. <laughs> We're all running into each other yeah. and dying. I like how when it's walking down the street and there's all of these people that are you see all these legs running past it and they do occasionally go nom, nom, and just try and snap at them, but it just keeps walking. Yeah. Sorry, did you have a favourite part from the pileup? Oh yes, I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> um, I like, oh yeah, I love when the police officer gets squashed between yeah. those cars. I think that's the most, like, wow. Oh, that's horrible, yeah. yeah. That's the most sort of, like, wow, that actually feels like a, you know, a traffic accident yeah. as opposed to sort of just a point to... I wondered how they did that at the time. Yeah, yeah, no, I still <clears throat> wonder that, actually, because it looks like it's... It doesn't look like a hitting him. doesn't look like you could fake it, but they yeah. must have faked it somehow. I think production did actually kill a few people. <laughs> For a good cause. And Luke, you mentioned that John Landis was uh, thrown through the window. Yeah, it's his cameo here. That's a pretty good cameo. What do you think about the fact that there's this werewolf which during the last half hour in this film has killed a lot of of people and there's this car pile-up sequence and it's running past all these people essentially cornering itself? Are you suggesting that David almost takes some control and puts himself in a... I'm not. Okay. I'm asking what you think. <laughs> he hasn't attacked anyone during this yeah. time, apart from the head police officer, yeah. whose head he bites off when he jumps out of the cinema. Which I love. Yeah, that's yeah, great. Yeah, cool. And his head just rolls off. I think it's probably a little implausible that yeah. this werewolf wouldn't be able to get away. I'm guessing perhaps it was just a way of wrapping up the film. Yeah. Luckily, the 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 um the, by that point, the film is operating at such a high pitch that you kind of don't really... You're not cognizant of it happening. Mm. It kind of gets away with it. It cheats it. Um, I haven't really thought about it until now, but you're right. I think it's probably a cheat. Yeah, I a, think so a as well. perfectly forgivable cheat. But it's also like we are supposed to think this is a creature and they might, they don't have the navigational skills of us human beings. <laughs> um, a lot of them have better ones, obviously, but like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So I guess, yeah, I agree. I think it gets away with it. Just sort of out of curiosity, a bit of a broader question. Why do you think werewolf mythology has sort of found a place in modern, I guess, modern folklore or modern storytelling when so many others didn't? I didn't know this until doing the research for this podcast, but just like with the witches in Salem, people were accused of being werewolves and they were put to death for that Yeah, yeah. in the 1500s. And it turns out they were just Greek. Um, <laughs> in ancient Estonia, this happened, I think. In the 1500s. Through the Middle Ages. Yeah, okay. And a lot of these people, uh, at least in the 1500s, were just serial killers in Europe. Mm. And Europe, apparently, at the time, had a large population of wolves. And the, it was as though the population was just conflating these people's crimes with something of an animalistic nature. And so they got accused, naturally, of being werewolves. Well, um, the reason I read that there's not a lot of publicity around that and the reason a lot of people don't know it is because it was kind of all tied in with the witchcraft trials. So, yeah, very often it would be like 15 would be accused of witchcraft and four of werewolves and they would um, all be executed. I found this interesting case from Germany. Did you hear of Peter Stump? And his neighbours caught him in his wolf form. Ooh. Or so it said. He admitted to murder, rape, and cannibalism, the latter of his own son, before he, his wife, and his daughter were executed, he because he was a werewolf, and his wife and his daughter for having had sex with a werewolf, because he raped his own daughter. 
Holy shit. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, find a little was, cheerful fact. Yeah, I also found that the story of the werewolf dates back to at least the year one, where Ovid wrote the Metamorphoses, which included the story of King Lycaon, who was transform- turned into a werewolf by Jupiter. So there's at least 2,000 years of history to the story of the werewolf. And uh, I assume that it continues today. It's a really, obviously, interesting mythology. But predominantly Christian countries, lycanthropy was closely associated with Satanism and witchcraft and the devil. So in that respect, it's almost elevated in status. Yeah. And uh, part of the reason that I guess werewolves in film became such a strong thing is because American... Um, filmmaking in English speaking countries is the predominant form of filmmaking and obviously just like in Europe in the 1500s there's a lot of wolves in North America these days so I guess that might have had something to do with the popularity of werewolves in American cinema and then American cinema obviously gets uh, shipped all around the world I think it also has something to do with what you were saying Cameron about you know the idea of vampires and blood there's an eroticism in that and I think it's true of this as well. And maybe that's why it's endured. I don't know. Like, ultimately, the mythology of the werewolf was a metaphor for insanity and madness. Um, and I think it's always going to be relevant because, in, especially in today's, you know, because mental illness is this omnipresent thing that we always keep hearing about. You know, more than ever, we're sort of bombarded with information about mental illness and how it affects people more than it ever has. The werewolf is just the most visual, most visceral uh, interpretation of that. I mean... You change from something you were into something you never wanted to be. Um, no one wants to be crazy or insane or a scene like that. So I think that kind of taps into that fear and that fear will always be there. I think it's also like, it's just an entertaining... It's just good. ...story. Yeah, yeah. it's an entertaining idea that someone would become wolf-like and, and not be in control. I mean, when a vampire becomes vampirous, they're still themselves. Vampiric. Whereas a werewolf, it's like they become somebody else. They're not in charge and they wake up and they have no idea what they've done. Because they've got so a that... monster inside them. <laughs> That's what we're going to name this podcast now. The monster inside all of us. So in terms of uh, the werewolf as one of the original universal monsters, mm. back in uh, the, I think they made it in the 40s, the Wolfman? Wolfman was 40. One, I'm sure yeah. we'll get picked up on the correctness of that. That was Lon Chaney. Lon yeah. Chaney Jr., yeah. So there was um, uh, Dracula, Frankenstein. The Mummy. The Mummy. Invisible the Wolfman, The Invisible Man, The Phantom of the Opera. Creature of the Black Lagoon as well. Cre- yeah, let's forget that one. Is this your favourite werewolf movie? Yes. Yep. Me too. But what of those original universal monsters, monster. you know, not necessarily yeah. Dracula or Frankenstein, but I guess you'd look at zombies, you'd look at vampires, mm. mummies, werewolves. It's a good question. Um, Vampire passion's kind of been sucked out of me with the twilight eruption. Yeah. I think when that dies down, I think that one will probably still be my favourite. Like, I think... Um, yeah. Bram Stoker style. Just going to draw this uh, comparison and say Frankenstein's a zombie so that I can say zombie movies are my favourite. I was actually going to say Frankenstein as well. I think that that's probably the most interesting to me. Just the, the tragedy of, yeah. you know, and it's really interesting, the whole the creator versus the created, and I, I like all of that. I, I, I find it really interesting looking at movie history and you've got those universal horror movies and then the next great horror movement was Hammer. And so the most popular of the Universal movies was Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, but the most popular of the Hammer movies was Christopher Lee's Dracula movies. Yeah. And I think that's interesting that they kind of, even though Dracula came before Frankenstein originally, and I think with Hammer, Frankenstein came before Dracula. Mm. But correct me if I'm wrong. Damien, why don't you take us through the release and reception of this film? The box office performance of American Werewolf was quite strong. Just like The Howling four months before, American Werewolf went straight in at number one, but it went in at number one against much harsher opposition. The Howling had debuted at number one with $4.9 million, went on to gross $17.9 million. It displaced Nighthawks from the top spot. And there wasn't really any summer blockbuster competition until two months later when Raiders of the Lost Ark, Superman 2 and the Bond film For Your Eyes Only opened. So all of those films were still in release and doing very well when American Werewolf opened. In fact, Raiders of the Lost Ark was still the number one movie and would return to that spot for most of September and some of October. 
American Werewolf opened to slightly less than The Howling with 4.6 million, but would gross 30.5 million and be the 23rd highest grossing film of the year in North America and the highest grossing horror film of the year. In terms of critical reception, it was, uh, I guess, mostly positive without being overwhelming. Variety said it was a clever mixture of comedy and horror, which succeeds in being both funny and scary, possessing an overriding eagerness to please that prevents it from becoming off-putting, and special effects freaks get more than their money's worth. Janet Maslin of the New York Times said it begins on a note that's equally balanced between comedy and horror, and that also has a fine touch of restraint. Gets off to a wonderful start. John Landis, who directed Animal House and the Blues Brothers, has the makings here of a much better movie than either of those. Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel both reviewed the film for their respective Chicago newspapers, The Sun-Times and The Tribune. Ebert said it seems curiously unfinished, as if Landis had spent all his energy on spectacular set pieces and then didn't want to bother with things like transitions, character development or an ending. The movie has sequences that are spellbinding and then long stretches when nobody seems sure what's going on. There are times when the special effects almost wipe the characters off the screen. It's weird. It's not a very good film. And he gave it two, two out of four. Roger Ebert, I'm sick of him. I wish um, Pauline Kael had reviewed this film. I think it would have tickled her. <laughs> uh, it's funny, there's this website out there, it's on Blogspot, and it's called Roger's Worst Reviews, and that features on there. I don't agree with any of those points. I'm going to think about no, it. I think I character development's decent. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, the, that's the one that really sticks out to me in that yeah. review, character development being bad. I think in, in terms of a horror movie, it's actually really good. And I think it's pretty clear in terms of the stakes, and I think everybody knows what's going on. No, I agree. I, th- I think he missed it. Yeah, rot in your grave, Uber. <laughs> Gene Siskel liked it a lot more, giving it three stars, saying that this film will make a number of people sick and some of its goriest shots are totally unnecessary, but at the same time, this is undeniably a very entertaining horror movie. What is special about the film is its totally realistic style. Almost everything makes sense. Which is actually the opposite of what Ebert said. Yeah. The film makes even a conversation between a dead man and a living person thoroughly plausible. There is nothing supernatural about the story other than its premise. (laughs) Which I think is a good review because it's actually quite accurate. Yeah, it's very interesting that he hit on that point. That's kind of true. And I think that's what I was saying about the discipline, but said much better. That the film didn't go over over the limits into absurdity. It told an absurd story. Mm. Pretty, like straight down the line. And I think that might actually be something that's done a lot in horror comedies as well. Well, done certainly done with successful ones. Yeah. They they toe that line. I think it's a very delicate balance. Yeah. The film was dedicated to Jim O'Rourke, um, who I wanted to just make mention of. Uh, Jim O'Rourke and John Landis worked as stuntmen in the 1960s. O'Rourke was a regular stunt double for Clint Eastwood in the Spaghetti Westerns. And it was O'Rourke who got Landis the job as production assistant on the 1969 film Kelly's Heroes. He died of lung cancer not long before the production of American Werewolf began. And as a direct result, Landis banned smoking on set. John Landis, like, banned smoking on set, and yet, like, a few years later, helicopters were allowed to chop someone's head off in in the Twilight Zone movie. (laughs) That's one of the biggest things. Like, him and Spielberg got taken, again, to court, you know, charged with manslaughter, like, involuntary manslaughter or whatever. Yeah, and that YouTube video to see that is online, and it's really scary. Yeah. We'll we'll link to that in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is Halloween. It's the month for sadism, so why not? As well as linking to some ISIS beheadings. Let's (laughs) let's just keep going. But, you know, I'm glad to hear that it did better than The Howling. um, Almost double. Well, it's a better film. And I wish that uh, that had happened this year with Sully and Deepwater Horizon. Because... You are holding a grudge. Oh, Sully is just terrible. And Deepwater Horizon is infinitely better. And yet it's not going to do as well. I haven't seen either of those films, but I've seen the trailers and I feel like I could agree with that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, that's just, uh, I needed to get that in there. It's been a gripe. Well, let's just tie that back in. How do you think Tom Hanks would go in a werewolf movie? I think he'd be great. He's always beautiful. Tom Hanks could play a child in Big. um, So I think, you know, being a werewolf would just tickle the child in all of us. Could or did? (laughs) All right, so um, my quiz, you guys have been so good with your research that you've wiped out two of my questions, so we're just going to do four. Um, Cameron, I'm going to start with you. Two artists refuse to lend their songs to this film for religious and political reasons. Name them. Cat Stevens, um, or I can't, whatever his actual... Yusuf Islam. Yeah. 
that one. I know he did it. Um, yep, that was one of them. The other one, I can't. I can think of one. I can't think of the other one. Bob Dylan. Bob so he gets half a point for that. Oh, because he was in his Christianity phase. Oh, they're both wankers, seriously. Yeah. I, I, I did read that, um, so I feel like I should still get those points. Yeah. Imagine objecting to anything about American Werewolf in London. It's it's an entertaining film. It's yeah. a fun film. It's um, well-meaning, even. Yeah. So it's... it's just ridiculous to get that haughty about your beliefs. Do you know one thing I read about Cat Stevens, because the song was Moonshadow, and he refused to... Um, allow them to use it in the film because he believed werewolves were real. Right. But uh, I think maybe it wasn't because of that. And also Elvis Presley. Uh, they, he couldn't get the rights to Elvis Presley's version of Blue Moon. Yeah. Because there were ongoing lawsuits with Elvis Presley's estate and it was, I think, four years after his death. I think the music choice in this film is, is pretty good. It's excellent. I don't particularly love the, the... What song is it when he's walking around the house? You don't. Bad Moon Rising. I love that song a lot. I I don't know. That felt a little bit like forced. That's the best use of the music That's in the film. That's my favourite music cue, I think, because it is right. so striking. My favourite music cue is the end credits. I love Bad Moon Rising. I think that song's fantastic. I, didn't, I just didn't completely buy it. So, yeah, Blue Moon was used three times on the opening credits by Bobby Vinton. The end credits by the Marcells and the transformation sequence by Sam Cooke. And then there was Bad Moon Rising, used just before the transformation sequence, and the sex scene song was Moon Dance by Van Morrison. Mm. And uh, there's, I couldn't find any information on why he didn't get the rights to Warren Zevon's Werewolves of London. I don't even know that song. Yes, you do. Damien, what is the significance of See You Next Wednesday? Uh, I also read this, so I should get the point, because I can't remember... See you, see you next Wednesday. Wednesday was the porn film in the movie, and John Landis also shot it. But what's the significance oh, of it? The title. Yes. Um, he'd also used it in a previous film. Cameron. Okay, um, I know bits of it. I know that it was used in two thousand and one. The Space Odyssey. That see you next Wednesday. And he uses it in some form or another. In like every film yeah so it's just a little odd easter egg that John Landis puts in all of his films I think I should probably give it to you Damien because you kind of got it what well did he (laughs) no Cameron you'll be a see you next Tuesday (laughs) soon (laughs) waiting for that alright fine so it's 0.5 for Cameron 0 for Damien it's okay Um, I'll make a comeback true or false Cameron Um, false you sure you want to go with that No. Cameron, what film did John Landis direct that starred uh, Eddie Murphy? What two films? Uh, Trading Places and... Oh, Coming to America? Yes. Okay, one and a half for you. You don't know. Uh, yeah. So you haven't even got another question for me. I do. Oh, okay. So, Damien, true or false, Max and Rachel, David's two young siblings who are named in the phone booth scene, are also the names of Landis's two children. True. Yes. Because <laughs> Max Landis was linked to the remake of American Werewolf in London. Oh, there you go. I believe. That's very good, Damien. Yeah. You're right. He is linked to it. I know that they were talking about him directing it at some point. Yeah. Also, no extra points for that little tidbit at the end. So it's one. <laughs> so Cameron's a quiz. Finally. <laughs> well, it was about time. Yeah, well, fuck you. So, all right, let's rate, rate the movie, Cameron. Four. Ooh, Damien. Five. Five, really? Five stars. Yeah, no, five stars. I I agree with you. I went four. In terms of you gave five stars for The Thing. Yeah. And five stars for this one. Do you think they're on the same... By that, obviously, you think they're on the same level? No. All right. I think The Thing is a better movie than American Werewolf in London. Yeah. But I think they're both five-star movies. I think they're both great movies. Mm-hmm. All right. I guess that's an interesting question. If if you give a film five stars, does it have to be as good as every other film you've given five stars? No, because there's yeah, not there's not only that. there's yeah. not only you know ten or eleven ratings from zero to five in half star increments. So if you could go very incrementally, you might go four point nine six, and it just rounds up to five. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Should we rate out of a hundred? No, <laughs> it's not your Seinfeld fucking quiz. Let's keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> 
Okay, guys. Well, that's all we have this month for Celluloid Junkies. Uh, next month, we're going to be looking at Martin Scorsese's 1990 crime drama film, Goodfellas. We've had a lovely time, and we're going to have a fantastic Halloween at Cameron's Halloween party. All are welcome. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Limited um, resources. Make sure you watch a fabulous, scary movie that you absolutely love and have a fantastic October. And uh, we'll see you in November. See you later. Thanks for joining us. See ya. come to see it and we show it on flatbed you know and we show it to them on the camera they are horrified i mean they they went jesus christ this is so gruesome this is so disgusting this is oh fuck what the hell are you showing they went crazy and they just really were offensive i mean they really went crazy i betrayed them like you know what is this and i said okay guys like a legal pad of paper all right tell give me your notes so they gave me their notes, and they spent like an hour and a half on their notes, and I wrote it all down until it's And I said, give me two, two weeks, and come back to London, and I'll show it to you again, and I will address your concerns. And they said, absolutely, and they left, and George turned to me and said, what are you gonna do? I said, nothing. <laughs> and what was interesting was that I did nothing. In fact, I went to Rome is what I did. But what was interesting was that, what was interesting was that they came back two weeks later, saw the identical film. And when it was finished, I said, thank you very much for dressing up. But you have to understand, but I, I'm not just ridiculing them. What it was is the picture is very, very gory and violent. And if you hadn't expected that, they were really shocked by it. They'd seen it. So the, 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 that value was gone. So they saw it again, you know, and without sound effects or music or anything. But still, it was like, oh, it's not so bad. Take your dad.